If you were interested in the life of someone of notoriety and history, whether it be someone who did much good or even someone who contributed to the ills of society, where would you begin? Many of us, depending on our age, would start with Google. Even though Google can seem like a dependable source, we would at some point find ourselves looking for some page of biography, either on the internet or in print. If it was available, you could pick up a biography on this person, and, and that's simply a story told about their life with credible sources sharing information on what was known about them told in narrative form. For Father's Day, Callie and the kids got me a biography on the life of one of the most popular theologians of modernity, Dr. R.C. Sproul, who quickly became one of my favorites in 2012. I have, I have read some of Dr. Sproul's work, including his masterpiece, The Holiness of God, but none of them share in depth who he was and what his ultimate purpose was, like this biography called A Life by Stephen J. Nichols. Nichols knew Sproul well and loved him as his teacher and pastor. Much of this biography was being written over the last five to six years as Sproul shared stories with Stephen, and so did his wife, Clesta. Sproul sadly passed in December of 2017, so remembering his life became of utmost importance. One thing R.C. will always be remembered for is how he made theology and doctrine easy to understand. Much of what he made accessible was very complex and nuanced theology and doctrine. A few years ago, Ligonier, the ministry he founded, began a YouTube page, and we instantly had access to R.C.'s teachings on a plethora of topics and passages in Scripture. And I would implore you to search him out. Just look up R.C. Sproul on uh, YouTube. The question is, why are biographies like this important to us? Why is it important to me? Because we get to know the person, quote unquote, warts and all. Even a man as great as R.C. had shortcomings, sin, and failures, and needed God's grace just like all of us. What about the person who has no warts or skeletons in the closet? What does his biography read like? If there was a true story told about the only perfect person who ever lived, what would it say and how would it help you to know him? Lastly, who do you say that he is? So we began our journey as a church in January of 2021 in the book of Ephesians, which is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. We call this an epistle. We've looked at Job, the Old Testament book that fits in the genre of wisdom literature, and we moved to James, another New Testament epistle, epistle and we just finished Jonah, the minor prophet in the Old Testament. Our hope is to preach all the way through the Bible if the Lord Jesus tarries and doesn't come anytime soon. It is important for us to approach each book we preach and study with redemptive lenses or our gospel glasses on our face. 
So how do we do that when it is a gospel narrative? First, we need to define what a gospel narrative is and what it's doing. I'm just going to warn you today, if you're a note taker, be ready because I'm going to be giving you some notes. So how do we do that? How do we define what a gospel narrative is? A gospel narrative is one of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are four different accounts all telling the same story on the life and ministry of Jesus, the Son of God. We get a a biography of who Jesus was, what he did, how he did it, and what he accomplished as the second person of the Holy Trinity. Now simply, gospel means good news. Or in the original language, there's this word that's used called evangelion. We see the very first gospel preached in Genesis chapter 3.15 by God himself. It'll be on the screen for you. Look at this. Genesis 3.15 says this. I feel you, Callie, because this is, it's hard to see up here. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we see the very first gospel, the very first good news is proclaimed by God himself. Man had been thrown into the clutches of sin because of their own disobedience and God is the one who promised that there was a Messiah who was coming to uh, release his people from the clutches of sin. After this moment, the world held its breath for the arriving of the Messiah, the anointed one who would redeem God's people from the curse of sin. To go a little further on this point of gospel or evangelion, this good news, in ancient days when an army would win a war, a messenger had the job of running nonstop day and night to their home and announce the victory of their army. This was a serious vocation. It was a serious job and it had serious implications for this person. In the gospel narratives, each gospel writer is announcing the victorious king who was anticipated from Genesis 3 and and that he has arrived into the world. Because we approach each book with our gospel glasses on, we get to focus in on this Christ who is the Lord. And much like a telescope, these gospel narratives help our finite minds look at this magnificent cosmic king who came to do for sinners what sinners could never do for themselves. I want to look at, I know Callie just read it for us, but I want to look again at Colossians chapter 1. verses 15 through 20. Think of it like a telescope we're looking at, this cosmic king. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is, Jesus is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the cosmic king that we want to take about a year to look at. So to state it simply, a gospel narrative is a true story or description about the good news that the Son of God assumed human nature and stepped into human history as the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly man, truly God, lived, died, defeated death, and ascended where he sits in power now at the right hand of the Father. The special revelation we get in a gospel narrative is that we get an actual telling of the story from either eyewitness accounts or someone who walked closely with someone who was an eyewitness to the life of Christ. While each four of the gospel narratives are related uh, in story, each one has a different way of telling that story or arranging elements of the same story. Each one of the four gospel narratives echoes the other. Okay, this is a lot of note. If you're, if you're a note taker, get ready, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call synoptic gospels. Synoptic is S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, synoptic gospels, because they are very closely related in how the story is told. Matthew arranges his telling like the first five books of the Bible or the Torah. If you, if you observe the book of Matthew, you see that it's written uh, in, in a very Jewish-like manner. Mark is clear in articulating that this is a new beginning for humanity or the coming of the Messiah is the hinge on which history swings. Luke organizes his narrative so that we can see that Christ is God's royal servant on, uh, of whom Isaiah the prophet spoke of. And then John, which is not a synoptic gospel, continually tells us so that we might believe, so that you might believe. You read that over and over in the gospel of John. We will be taking our time walking through the gospel narrative of Mark or the gospel according to Mark. So here's another question. Who was Mark? Mark was also called John Mark. We see that in Acts chapter 12, if you want to turn there with me. Acts chapter 12, verses 12 and 25. This will be on the screen for you. Acts 12, 12. Let's see this. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was what? Mark. Where many were gathered together and were praying. Skip down to verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. 
He was a spiritual son to the apostle Peter. Look at 1 Peter in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. It says this, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. He was a spiritual son to the apostle Peter. This meant Mark's account of the life of Christ would have been actual eyewitness accounting that he would have carefully documented from Peter. Mark also travels with the apostle Paul, and at one point he deserts Paul, and they have an actual falling out. Look at, I want you to see this. This is in Acts chapter 15, this narrative of Paul, I'm sorry, yes, Paul and Mark having a falling out. Acts 15 verses 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with with them one who had withdrawn from them or deserted them from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Verse verse 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. There's a falling out between the Apostle Paul and Mark. It seems though, after some time, Paul restores John Mark or Mark to ministry. Look at 2 Timothy 4.11. 2 Timothy 4.11. It'll be, it should be up on the screen for you. It says this, if I can see it. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So why do I have you turn to all these places? Because I want you to see that this is an actual person who sat with someone who had eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. I want you to see this in scripture. This is not just my opinion. We can actually find documentation in Scripture that Mark was an actual person. We can trust him that the Holy Spirit used his words to tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark has a very specific way of writing this narrative that's true to his nature. It is punchy, and it moves quickly, and he often uses the word immediately. If you've spent any time reading the Gospel of Mark, you see the word immediately. Immediately they went. Immediately he got up. Immediately they went here. And it moves us from scene to scene. Think of each scene in Mark like a newspaper article. And we must remember, remember this, that most people in that day were illiterate. They could not read. So this story would have had to been read to them. They would have had to listen to the gospel according to Mark. They did not have the luxury of sitting down to read. And Mark tells us his story in three acts. Here's the three acts. Who is Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? 
And how does Jesus become king? Those three acts, we'll see all three of those acts unfold as we journey through Mark's account. And it's easy to over-spiritualize where we we will be next and what book we will preach and teach through in the life of our church. Many times, you can ask Rusty or Matt this, I just want God to tell me where we're gonna be next and what book we're gonna be next. And I'm often reminded, much by these men, I'm often reminded that we have 66 books that are an inexhaustible well of God revealing himself in a very specific way to his people. So let me just say this. I'm going to put myself on blast here. It doesn't matter what we preach next as long as we're preaching the word of God. Amen? It doesn't matter what book, Old Testament, New Testament. And we do try and we we spend time in the Old Testament and the New Testament because we want to see together as a church, we want to see Christ in all of the scriptures no matter where we are. We have also been trying to build our endurance as we have spent longer lengths of time in a book. This is a conversation Matt and I had early on because I was like, let's just dive into the book of John and just be there for three years. And he's like, bro, I love you, but whoa. <laughs> There's, and, and here's what's true. And here's what's true about me too. I just want, like, I just want to bull rush through this. But really, what we need to do is build some endurance over, over time, over the last almost two years in the books that we've been in. Think about Jonah for just a minute. We just finished the, the minor prophet Jonah in the Old Testament. It took us nine weeks when it is only four short chapters, and it averages about ten verses in each chapter. No matter the book, we want to see Christ exalted and explained as the main character. A book like Mark will definitely help us with this. We will see the contours of Christ. We will hear his voice and learn to trust and love him in his human nature. We get to meet Emmanuel, God with us. This is who we get to meet in the book of Mark. And I wanted to answer three questions in this introduction today as we look at Mark. Here's the three questions. What is Mark? It's a gospel narrative. Who is Mark? He's an actual uh, person in scripture. And lastly, why Mark? Why would we preach? Why would we take such a long time to preach through Mark? I think verse 1 of Mark chapter 1 answers the last question. It is the why of the whole book. Turn if you would now. You're like, Ricky, when are you going to get to Mark? Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to this. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. This book, from all the reading that I've done, I've done a lot of reading in commentaries and articles and things like that, this book actually would have been anonymous. No one would have really known who wrote this book. It wouldn't have said, the gospel according to Mark. Mark did not name himself as an author of this book, but the actual title of the gospel narr- of this gospel narrative would have been verse 1. That would have been the title you would have seen to the book. 
Verse 1 would have been a massive statement for any Jewish person with knowledge of the Old Testament to hear. It would have been, listen, it would have been breaking news of the best news ever announced. They would have, it would have taken them back. Any Jewish reader or hearer in this day, they, they would have been taken back by this news. Look at verse 1, if you would. I want to break this down before we finish up today. Verse 1, verse 1. Or, sorry, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning, those two words need to make us pause. We need to stop and think about what Mark is saying here. It echoes Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Where I'm not going to make you turn there, but it says, in the what? In the beginning. In the beginning of God? No. God is the one who begins time. He has no beginning and he has no end. We see in Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. There is no one who comes before me and no one who comes after me. In the beginning, Mark says, the beginning. Mark is literally stamping the timeline of history with two words. It is the start of what has, an, has been anticipated for many years now. The dawn of the good news has been foretold and predicted by the prophets. Look at the, the next two words there, Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, word G, or the name Jesus simply means Yahweh is salvation. This is the covenantal name of God. Yahweh is salvation. And then Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one. This is who they were waiting on. They were anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. Lastly, the Son of God, those last few words, the Son of God, shows us that he is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is begotten by the Father, very God of very God, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, listen to me, look at me for just a moment. Verse 1 is literally the main idea of the book of Mark. So if, you, if, you're, if we're reading in chapter 5, in chapter 10, and you forget the main idea, go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and remember what the main idea of Mark is. It is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is saying here, hey, y'all need to pay attention to this. This is breaking news of the best news you've ever heard. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is here. We need to pay attention to this. I want to fast forward just a few chapters. Jesus poses a question in Mark chapter 8. I want to read this for us. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. 
And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the one who is anointed, the Messiah, who has come to save the world. With all of this context today, the question is posed to you as well, uh, and, and me, and it will continually be posed to you the rest of the book. Who do you say that he is? Listen, will we let the scriptures define for us who this man is from a small town in Nazareth who came to live a perfect life you and I could never live, who died a substitutionary death on that wretched Roman cross, a very real death, and laid for three days in a borrowed tomb, and after those three days defeated death, gave us access to the Father, sealed us with his spirit, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Where do I get all that information? Is it just because I feel that it's right? Is it just because I've come up with some thoughts or I've sat down with people who are smarter than me or I've read a few books? It is because the Bible defines who Christ is. Because Christ tells us in his word. Will we trust it? Will we trust this age-old story that the Son of God came to live as the Son of Man in your place and in mine? This is going to be a long journey for us. It is. But I, wanna t I want us to take time to really see who he is. Ben, I want to go ahead and invite you to come up. I want to end with just an honest confession. Not too many people know this, just people closest to me, obviously my wife being one of them. A few years ago, <clears throat> I struggled with some serious doubt, serious questions about who God was, and I really wrestled with the question, does God even exist? And it sent me into some pretty dark places in my mind and in my heart. And this is something that brought a lot of shame. It brought a lot of anxiety. Because I thought, how could someone who's going to plant a church struggle with these kinds of doubts? So I started really praying, talking to some people close to me. And I read a book by a guy called Help My Unbelief. And one thing stuck out to me the most in that book. And he said he's, he struggled with the same thing. He's been a pastor at a church. He's helped many ministries and things like that. And he said, I had this secret struggle 
I had this secret, private, hidden shame of this doubt that I had. And he said, so I challenged myself. And he said, so I just started reading through the gospel narrative slowly, taking my time. And he said, it was when I, when I got to the book of John in the gospel narratives, he said, I, met, I was met with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I took my time and started reading through the gospel narrative, specifically through the book of John. And I was met with the Lord Jesus there. And I was reminded that I could come to him with my doubts. I could come to him with my fears. I could come to him with my anxieties. And he was trustworthy. Do I still struggle with doubt? I do. But my first inclination is to run to the word of God, to run to prayer. When I struggle with anxiety, when I struggle with fear, whatever it is, when I struggle with sin, I want my first inclination, first place I go, is prayer and the word of God. So my invitation this morning is, if you are not in Christ, is Jesus just a good teacher? Is he just a good moral man? Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's just your ticket out of hell. My invitation to you this morning, if you're not in Christ, is that you would suspend all those ideas and that the Lord Jesus would meet you in this book. He would lift your chin and he would tell you, no, this is who I am. You may have this preconceived idea of who I am, but this is who I am because my word says so. If that's true for you this morning, I ask that you would not leave this place without repenting of your sin, putting that to death and looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him for he will not reject you. If you are in Christ, if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, my question is that I will leave us with, who do you say that he is? Is he just a hard master? Is he just some distant deity who has deceived you and led you into places that you're like, why would you bring me here to die? Or is he a good Savior? Let's meet him here in this account that Mark has for us. Let's meet him here. Let's pray.